let's read the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? For they knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea come down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the man did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And this, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me, uh, barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose up to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. 
And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the very dry land. Uh, again, if you don't know me, I'm Chris, and we're diving into this minor prophet. We're covering the whole book today. Isn't that exciting? I think it's exciting. Uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, thank you for the book of Jonah. Thank you that it points us to Jesus. Uh, thank you that it's not just a story about Jonah. It's not just a story about Nineveh. It's a story about you, and it's a story about us. Help us to hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, most of us, if we were asked, what's the book of Jonah about? Most of us, if we know anything about the story, would say, the whale. Or, if you remember the impact of Jonah's preaching, chapter 3, which we didn't read, you might say, the power of God's word. Or, if you know how the book ends, you might say, God's heart for the nations. The book of Jonah is a preacher's favourite. Four short chapters, each with a different setting. There's the sea, the fish, Nineveh, and outside Nineveh. Perfect for a short four-week series. Chapter one, you can't run from God. Chapter two, conversion. Chapter three, the power of the word of God. Chapter four, God's heart for the nations who do not know him. Today, we're covering the whole book in one week, not four, and so we're forced to ask, what is the main message God is giving us across all those four chapters? Uh, I went to sleep thinking about this and woke up in the morning realizing I'd been processing that question all through the night. I realized that all of the chapters deal with people turning repenting. Chapter 1, the sailors turn to God. Chapter 2, Jonah turns to God. Chapter 3, Nineveh turns to God. Chapter 4, God turns and Jonah objects to God's turning about Nineveh. Turning is a main theme but a theme isn't a message. Um, you might say turning, big whoop, what's that got to do with us? Well, we have to ask, what's the book about and what does it say um, about what it's about? The book opens with God telling Jonah to go to the foreign city of Nineveh to preach against it. Of course, Jonah doesn't go. He runs in the exact opposite direction until God catches him in the fish, brings him down where Jonah personally cries out to God for salvation and then brings him up where at the end of chapter 2, Jonah is now ready to go. So chapters 1 and 2 are about God turning Jonah to be obedient to his command about mission. Chapters 1 and 2 focus on the issue of obedience, of Jonah not obeying God, and then God turning him round, grabbing him by the scruff of the neck, so that he does, in the end, obey. That's the first half of the book. If the first half of the book focuses on the issue of Jonah being obedient to God's mission. The second half of the book focuses on Jonah sharing God's heart for mission. Obedience, heart. When Jonah does go to Nineveh, chapter 3, and he preaches and the city repents, and God changes his mind and he spares them, Jonah then says, I knew you'd do that, that's just like you. <laughs> to which God then gives Jonah an object lesson, and the point of which is to wake Jonah up to his own hard-heartedness and to challenge him to share God's heartfelt mission concern for people who do not know. Obedience to God's mission, sharing God's heart in mission. 
That's what the book of Jonah is about. And therefore, it speaks to us. Um, most of us, I'm not assuming everyone, but most of us here today would say, I be we, you belong to God's people, as did Jonah. Like Jonah, uh, as those who belong to God's people, we have received a command from God to be actively involved in world mission. Do you remember Jesus' command to his disciples after he'd risen from the dead? Go, make disciples of all nations. Well, there's God's command, go. Um, that command really should be ringing in our ears when we think of Jesus' death and resurrection, the explicit command of the risen Jesus to all of his disciples. Um, if all of us right, right now were to write down on a piece of paper, therefore, all the different ways that we are involved in obeying that command, how are you involved in world mission actively? Would you have anything to write? Okay. Or would it be easy to think of what to write? Or would you be left scratching your head? For some of us, there's an issue of obedience. For others, yes, we'll be being obedient. Maybe we've had years of being obedient, uh, either going ourselves when we can, or perhaps supporting those who've gone. But there's an outstanding issue of heart. Truth be told, we're hard-hearted towards the fate of other people. We don't share God's fate. God's heart for the lost. In the book of Jonah, God challenges us and he's speaking to us. He's speaking to us of our world. Now, Jonah was a real person, did you know? From 2 Kings chapter 14, it's the place he's mentioned outside the book of Jonah, we can place him as a prophet around 760 BC. If we can pop up the slide, thank you, there you are. Beyond the Bible, his tomb, that's it, was an Islamic shrine, because Jonah is also mentioned in the Quran, and the Muslims venerate him. There you go. I say was uh, an Islamic shrine, because in 2014, the so-called Islamic State blew it up. There you are. What I'm saying is that Jonah still connects with our world. Jonah was sent to preach against Nineveh, a city known for its wickedness and its violence. Do you know where Nineveh is? Do you know where it is? There's an aerial photograph. Next one. Have we got an aerial photograph? We don't. Imagine an aerial photograph, okay, of the city of Nineveh, um, the ruins of Nineveh. Do you know where it is? Can anyone hazard a guess? Where in the world is Nineveh? Middle East, good. Anywhere? Syria, no. Iraq. Any city in Iraq? Mosul. Mosul, thank you. The ruins of the ancient city of Nineveh lie within the city of Mosul in Iraq, a city also known for its violence and wickedness. Interesting, right? Okay. Uh, Mosul, if you've been uh, aware of what's been happening in world events over the last five years, has been a city in the spotlight. Uh, Christians persecuted um, and then of course, it was a, a main center for the Islamic State. So the book of Jonah speaks to us in our world. There's two halves, right? In the first half, God turns Jonah to be obedient to his mission. In the second, God aims to turn Jonah's heart, to share God's heart in mission. But the first thing God, do is he, God has to do is to turn Jonah to be obedient to the mission. Um, I once heard of... Oh, 
sorry, uh, earlier on this year, I heard from Greg Sheridan. I was at a talk where Greg Sheridan spoke. He was, he's an, uh, a, a columnist in The Weekend Australian, and he's been a, a journalist for decades. And he spoke on the book of Jonah. It was hilarious. He said, because I came at it as an adult and read it for the first time as a, as a journalist. And so Jonah's a foreign correspondent. And uh, then he gets his brief. You have to go to Mosul. So he does what any foreign, foreign correspondent would. He goes on a cruise instead. Anyway, so <laughs> there you go. He was very funny. The book opens with God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness had come up before God. A clear command to Jonah to leave the comfort of being amongst his own people and to go. If God told you to go to Mosul and preach, would you go? Well, neither does Jonah. Verse 3, God, Jonah runs away from the Lord in the exact opposite direction. He, he, bound, he boards a ship bound for Tarshish, most, most likely Spain, which back then was the edge of the known world. He's getting as far away as he possibly can. It would be like you or myself running away to Antarctica, right? Now, why does he run? We're not told, but we can guess. If God told you, leave Adelaide, go to Mosul, preach in the streets, would you go? Nineveh was a city famous for violence. More than that, its army would march against Israel and destroy it within only 40 years. Jonah was a prophet. We don't know that he knew this, but we can guess that he would be understandably concerned. Mosul was the center of the Assyrian Empire and they were on the rise. So Jonah runs. He bounds a ship to fl flee from the Lord and the ship sets sail. Now, if you were God, what would you do to your disobedient prophet? Okay, you'd stop him. So the Lord sends a great wind on the sea that causes a storm, a storm so huge that the ship threatens to break up. The sailors, like all the Gentiles back then, were polytheists, that is, they, they each call on their own God. But Jonah, he's below deck asleep. How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe we won't perish. And then it comes out. The storm is so wild that the sailors conclude one of them must be being punished by their God. They cast lots, the lot um, falls on Jonah. Now he's confronted. Who are you? The answer terrifies the sailors. I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Jonah's God is the true God, the true Lord over the whole world. He made it. He rules it. He's the one amongst the pantheon of gods who really is God. Jonah belongs to him, but it's clear he has offended the Lord. What have you done? The sea is getting rougher. Forget what have you done, too late for that now. More immediate question, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah replies, throw me overboard. It's my fault the storms come upon you. Through the storm, God confronts Jonah. And Jonah is aware that his sin deserves death. What do the sailors do? They show compassion. Instead of throwing him over, they try throwing everything else overboard that they can. They try rowing back to shore, but the sea is now getting wilder and stronger than before. And therefore, with no other options left, the sailors now cry out personally to the Lord, begging them, begging him to not, to not uh, hold them guilty for taking Jonah's life. Well, as soon as they toss Jonah overboard, suddenly the raging sea becomes totally calm. 
totally calm. That terrifies them even more. First, they're afraid of the storm. They call on their gods. Then they're terrified of Jonah. But now they greatly fear the Lord. They offer a sacrifice to him. And more than that, they make vows to him. This is Old Testament shorthand for saying that they have turned to the Lord and become believers. All right? Now, can you see the sovereign God is so at work in his servant that Jonah is a successful evangelist in spite of himself? Now, I wonder if the sea suddenly becoming calm, Jonah sleeping below decks, does that ring any bells for you? Does it make you think of any other moment in the New Testament? Okay. A man asleep in a boat during a terrifying storm, the sea going completely calm, making the other men in the boat even more afraid. Of course, uh, it reminds us of Jesus in the boat, in the storm, asleep in the stern, who quietens the winds and the waves with his word. One greater than Jonah. As if Jonah himself is prophetic of the one to come. Hang on to that. Chapter 1 begins with Jonah running away from the Lord. By the end of the chapter, the Lord has caught him. He sovereignly sends a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah remains inside for three days and three nights. Was it real fish? You want to know stories, don't you? Uh, the story in the 1800s of some whaler who was found in the you know, belly of a whale. I don't know about those stories being true. Jesus thought it was true. Um, yes, it is weird. It is abnormal. It's meant to be. It's, it's, it's meant to be totally weird. Okay. I believe it. There you go. Um, he's inside for three days and three nights. The Lord has captured Jonah's body, but has he captured him? Not yet. Because we're not yet sure that Jonah would obey God. And so in chapter 2, God brings Jonah down. Literally down, down to the depths, to the depths of the sea, which Jonah speaks of as Sheol, the place of the dead. On the 12th of August, 2000, a Russian nuclear submarine, the Kursk, became disabled and sank in naval exercises in 108 metres of water. An explosion killed all but 23 of the 108 men and women on board. In the days that followed, the survivors struggled in waist-deep water in the submarine with noxious fumes of the explosion. On the bottom of the ocean floor, with minimal air, in a toxic environment, totally helpless. That's the place of the dead. Aside from being dead yourself. Jonah describes him being hurled into the deep, the currents swirling about him, the waves and breakers sweeping over him, of him sinking seaweed wrapping around his head, and of then him being taken down and surrounded by the deep, right down to where the mountain roots are, so deep it's called the depths of the grave, the place of banishment away from the sight of God. And at that place of death and darkness and abandonment, Sheol, Jonah prays to God. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. Obviously, this is uh, written sometime afterwards, after he's out. Didn't have any parchment while he was down there. I sank down, but you raised me up. You brought my life up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. You see what's happened? God has brought Jonah down, as he had to, 
for Jonah to call out to God and then God to raise him up. Well, God often brings people down to make them stop running, to call out to him before he then raises them up. That's his pattern. We're so thick and so hard-hearted. He often has to do the worst to us, bar kill us, to bring us down before we will wake up and call on him. Going down, coming up. When you think about it, that's the shape of the Bible, isn't it? God brings us down through sin and death. We fall, as Adam and Eve did in Eden, before at the end of the Bible, God will raise us up to stand before him. It's the shape of salvation. Jesus himself spoke of what would happen to him in Jonah-like terms. Just as Jonah was it three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's very journey down and up was prophetic of Jesus' journey to the place of the dead, the cross, before being brought up again, as was Jonah. By the end of chapter 2, the Lord brings Jonah up completely. He commands the fish to spit Jonah out onto dry land. That would have been great to see, wouldn't it? By the end of chapter 2, however, we know that God has turned Jonah completely around. Listen to him in verse 8. We hear the words of a man who's been changed. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. They are the words of a man who's experienced the Lord's mercy and grace and salvation. And now someone who wants to be obedient. He says, what I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And he personally knows it. So in chapters 1 and 2, God turns Jonah to be obedient to his mission. And so in chapter 3, which we haven't read, the word of the Lord now comes to Jonah a second time. And so to Nineveh, now he goes. To Nineveh to that very important city. For three days, he preaches in the streets the same message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's a message of coming judgment. It sounds like it's a fait accompli, a done deal. But then you think, if that's so, what's the point of the Lord sending Jonah? There's another plan here at work. No doubt it would have come fulfilled if the city hadn't responded how they did, but there's something else going on. First, we zoom in on the response of the people of Nineveh. Those people believe God. With one mind, the whole city repents. They turn to God, they declare a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth as a sign of humility before God. And then we zoom now, we change scenes, and we zoom now into the palace and we see into the throne room, we, we see the response of the king. When the news of, what, of Jonah's preaching and his message and the response hits the king of Nineveh, he moves away from his throne. That's significant. He takes off his royal robes. That's significant. And he covers himself with sackcloth and he sits down in the dust. He visibly humbled, humbles himself before the Lord. And then he speaks to his people. An official declaration, not to let anyone or anything eat or drink. A total fast, citywide, can you imagine? 
He calls on everyone to repent, to give up their violence, their evil ways, and he calls on everyone urgently to call on God. Verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent, and the word in Hebrew is actually repent. Not repent of sin, but do a U-turn. God may totally change. Turn from his fierce anger with compassion so that we will not perish. So the Ninevites turn. Now, if your view of prophecy and of God's sovereignty is so fixed that there can be no room for God to respond to how people respond, then have a look at verse 10 of chapter 3. It says there, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God was compassionate. He responded. Judgment day, at least for that generation, was averted. It's massive, isn't it? Now, you might say, I can't imagine that happening today. I mean, why did the Ninevites respond like that? We know from Assyrian records that a complete solar eclipse occurred on the 15th of June, 763 BC. Soon after, floods and famine followed. Jonah came very soon after that, proclaiming that the city would be overturned. Is it possible that the Lord, who we know from chapter 1, made heaven and earth, and who causes storms to come and go, and who is in charge of even the fish of the deep, that the Lord, who is so sovereign over his physical world, can prepare a people to fear him enough so that when he does speak, people will listen? It absolutely is. I don't know if that's why God's sent a a drought on Australia. It could well be. In Nineveh's history, historians say that Nineveh would never be so great as in the decades following Jonah's visit. In other words, for that generation, the word of God had impact. Yes, they were wicked and violent. Yes, they deserved to be overturned. But yes, God still had a heart to reach them. And his will was effective. Jonah, unfortunately, did not share God's heart. He may have been obedient to God, but when God responded with compassion on the city, Jonah did a complete dummy spit and said, I knew you'd do that, God. Isn't that what I said when when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to, to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, Take away my life, for it's better to me to, uh, to die than to live. Total dummy spit, right? Verse 4, but the Lord replied, have you any right? Have you any right to be angry? Jonah goes out, sits down at a place east from the city. There he makes himself a little shelter, sits in its shade, waits to see what will happen to the city. He wants God to nuke it. In his heart, that's what he wants. Now, why? Was he simply angry that God had now made him to look like a fool? He'd be wrong. The whole city city took him seriously. The city didn't think he was a fool. They took his words very seriously. Was he angry that God had saved the people who would destroy his own people? Well, that could be a reason, couldn't it? 
Or was it that he simply didn't think they were deserving of God's compassion, as maybe he himself thought that you know, he was deserving? That's more likely. Whatever the reason, Jonah is an obedient missionary, but his heart isn't in it. Quite likely, that describes a lot of us. To challenge Jonah to change his heart, God gives Jonah an object lesson. You see, if all the message of Jonah, the book of Jonah, was about how God's compassion for the lost and um, how God saved Nineveh, then it would have finished at chapter 3, but it doesn't. There's another chapter. And this is where God speaks to us. The object lesson. In verse 6, chapter 4, God provides a vine and makes it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And then we read, Jonah was very happy about the vine. (laughs) He was very angry about the city, what God was doing, but he's very, very happy about the vine. But in verse 7, at dawn the next day, God, the sovereign Lord of of the universe, provides a worm. He provided a great fish, now he provides a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. So when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Second time, God says to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do. I'm angry enough to die. What a classic Middle Eastern guy, you know. (laughs) feels things so strongly but the Lord said and here's the lesson you have been concerned about this vine though you didn't tend it you didn't make it grow it sprang up overnight it died overnight but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left they just don't know what being human means, which is to worship the Lord. 120,000 people, many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? It's really funny how God teaches us, isn't it? You know, we all have vines that we are really precious to us. <laughs> Things that come into our lives which for a short time make our lives really comfortable, pleasant. I wonder what it's for you. For me, it's my favorite pen. You know, if I have my pen in my pocket, then I feel like I'm okay. If I've lost my pen, I'm panicky. For me, it's it's my phone, having my phone just there ready. I can be in touch with the world. You know, if I don't have it. My, My comfy green chair. I love my comfy green chair. I love to sit in it at the end of the day. It makes me think life is wonderful. Well, I wonder what it is for you. Your zippy car. What is it, that thing that you love, you love, which just makes life more comfortable? I mean, you know, we're all on the conveyor belt, you know, heading off to death, aren't we? You know, it's going to be very uncomfortable along the way. We we like to pamper ourselves and surround ourselves with things which just ease it a bit for us, don't we? What is it for you at this point in time? What's your little comfort object? The thing that you sort of feel disconnected if you haven't got around you, but when it's with you, you're very, very happy. Where we get angry when our phone, our iPhone falls in the toilet. (laughs) When we lose our favorite pen. When I'm so busy I don't get to sit in my comfy green chair. When our little car won't start. 
Through the book of Jonah, God is challenging us to ask ourselves, do we care more about these things taken from us or the thousands of people in the hills who do not yet know him? You see, through Jonah, God is issuing us a prophetic challenge. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has told us that he wants us to be involved in world mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's the command. It's very clear. And the two questions God is asking of us through the book of Jonah is, number one, are you obeying me in what I've told you to do with world mission? Second, do you share my heart for the people of the world? First of all, are you obeying me? Jesus has told us to get on with the job of making disciples of the nations. That is God's command to every Christian, every believer, because to be a Christian means to be a follower of Jesus, which means to be a disciple. He said this to his disciples. And he who commanded us is the one who is greater than Jonah. He who commanded us is the one who himself commanded the storm to be still to command the wind and the waves to obey him, shall we? He who commanded us is the one who himself died for the nations, who was in the earth three days and three nights, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, to win the possibility of salvation for the nations. He who commanded us really did go down to the place of the dead. He really was brought up from the dead as the ruler of life, to give life to all who turn to him, because that is his desire, that all would turn to him and live, if only they hear the message. So how are we going to obey him? You know, if each of us had to write down the different ways that we were involved in world mission, would you have anything to write? Some people here can look back on decades of involvement indirectly in world mission, You've been giving, you've been writing, you've been praying, and even when you can, perhaps you've had times when you've gone. But some here have been like Jonah and have run completely in the opposite direction from any involvement at all in world mission. And today, you know, what's happening here? God, through his spirit, he's chasing you like he chased Jonah. And he's catching you and he's challenging you to turn back and take Jesus' command seriously and obey him. But where do you start? Well, you could email CMS and say, I would like to get prayer points for Maggie Cruz or women Micah Prince or Tammy and Arthur Davis, the missionaries that we support at our church, and I would like to commit to pray for them. That's a very easy thing to do, very simple. But suddenly you are involved in world mission. You might like to become a giver. Um, But beyond finances, uh, personally, you might like to smile at a Muslim person who you see, maybe at work, maybe at school, maybe in town. Someone, a Muslim person, probably of the same sex as you, that's a good, good idea, and start a conversation with them. Or if that's too hard, you might... Next time you see someone from a different country, smile at them and see what God will do with that. On the other hand, maybe you are involved in world mission, but your issue is not one of obedience. Your issue is that of the heart. You do obey, 
but you struggle to look at people with the same compassion that Jesus has. You find it easier to write people off for their hard-heartedness than show real concern for them. So when you hear of Jesus speaking against the people of his day who were unresponsive, saying the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now one greater than Jonah is, is here, when you read those words, you find yourself writing them off rather than grieving for them. Is that you? Uh, sometimes it's me. And truth be told, sometimes I am appalled at my lack of love for people. I think, how is that possible? You know, I sing that song, May, May the Mind of Christ My Saviour. I get to the verse, May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. That, for me, is a real prayer. Because it bothers me that I don't love people more than I do. How can we better share God's compassion for nations that don't know him? People that we don't know, how can you love them? Well, I have found Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 immensely helpful. Uh, it may be on a screen. Alison, is it? No, nothing. Well, forget it. Listen. Okay. Um, Paul explains where he gets his own heart for the lost. He says there, Christ's love compels us. In other words, it's Christ's love for the nations that compels him, not his own love for them, but him knowing that Jesus loves them. That for him is compelling because then he explains, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. The in other words, there's a logic that's going on. The logic of the gospel, it compels his heart. Every time he sees someone violent, someone unlovable, someone that he is tempted to write off as undeserving, unworthy of being evangelized or something like that, he can say, no, 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 Christ loved that person and Christ died for that person. And for him, that's enough. That's enough for him to go and speak. He may not feel love for that person, but it's enough for him to know Jesus loves that person. And therefore, he'll go. Well, that's helpful for me. Was Jonah's heart changed? We don't know. But the book ends deliberately open-ended. <laughs> we don't know. Yes, his heart was changed. No, it wasn't. We're left wondering. But if Jonah's tomb really was Jonah's tomb in Mosul, we know he stayed, don't we? If that's the case, then it's compelling to think that God actually did turn his heart around. The object lesson did work. And that Jonah gave his life to the people of Nineveh. That's remarkable. Who will we give our lives for? Let's pray. Father, fill us with your love, your compassion, your heart for the loveless, that we would obey not out of duty, but increasingly because we share your love. Please increase our obedience and heart to take the gospel to the people of the world because they matter to you.
may they increasingly matter to us. Amen.